Well, good morning. It is good to be back in my own home church this morning. So uh, for, for those of you that, uh, that don't know me, my name is Rich Henderson. I'm the director of Love, Inc. of uh, uh, South San Jose, and I am a member of this church. And I say that because uh, you might think I'm a first-time visitor. I, I looked on my calendar uh, between family vacations and preaching at other churches and the family gatherings. The last time I was here was May 20th. So, yeah, Dave was still in the Book of Romans last time I was here on a Sunday morning. So, uh, now, let me let me give you a little advice. If you're thinking about being gone from NBC for six weeks, don't do it, because Dave might ask you to preach the sermon, okay? It's kind of a radical tactic to get people back to church, but it worked in my case. So, um, since I've been attending church in this building with some of you for 16 years, the entire time I've been uh, the Love, Inc. director, some of you are very familiar with uh, Love, Inc. and what we do, but also um, some of you might not know anything about us at all. Last time I spoke here was last summer, so if you're new to the church since uh, last summer, uh, you might not know about Love, Inc. I plan to give just a short introduction about our ministry, and then I want to spend the bulk of our time together on the sermon topic of biblical principles for helping people in need. And uh, I think I, I clicked slides for the first time last month, so I know how to do this now. <laughs> so I've discovered over the years that if you work uh, for an organization with a name like Love, Inc., people make some faulty assumptions about what you do for a living. So to clarify, I do not run a tattoo parlor that caters to couples, okay? That's one assumption I've got. I also don't run a dating service, so... Uh, The Love, Inc., the Inc. in our name stands for Love in the Name of Christ. And Love, Inc. uh, forms when Christian churches from various denominations decide they want to work together to help them meet the the, uh, tangible needs of people in their community in a distinctively Christian way. And in our area, that happened uh, 29 years ago when what was then Love, Inc. of Santa Clara County uh, was formed. We are one of 137 Love, Inc. affiliates uh, across the country. And there's now five Love, Inc. affiliates in Nairobi, Kenya. And uh, Love, Inc. serves as a clearinghouse where requests for help come in from people in need in the community. Those requests are investigated, and the ones that are legitimate, specific, and manageable become service opportunities for members of Love, Inc. network churches. In your bulletin, you've got this yellow uh, talent survey. This is our inventory of... uh, of the talents of the members of those churches. So I encourage you during this message to fill that out. Uh, you can turn it in at the, at the end of the service. The ushers will be uh, standing by the doors. They've been uh, instructed, don't let anybody pass you without turning one of these in. So save yourself the embarrassment of trying to sneak out. But uh, uh, this is how we know who's available to help. Uh, all of our services are rendered uh, free of charge as a tangible expression of the love of Jesus to the person in need. And by conviction, we receive no government uh, funding, which leaves us totally unencumbered uh, to talk to clients about Jesus. And our goal is to use the request for help as a bridge to Christians and their churches to build a relationship with the client and to be an influence for Jesus in their life. Most of the clients that you'll get uh, a chance to meet if you volunteer are unchurched. And the reason for that is if they have a church, we try and connect them with their own church first. So most of the ones that get passed on are unchurched. And so in a very real way, you're joining the local missions effort of NBC when you turn in your completed talent survey. In fact, uh, I'd like those of you 
who have served a loving client in the past, if you could stand up. All right, take a look at this. This is our local missions force, folks. Can we give these folks a hand? All right, you sit down. I want to thank you for serving the Lord through love in the name of Christ. Um, you know, it's possible that you've never heard of Love, Inc. before this Sunday, uh, but you have unknowingly supported this ministry. That's because uh, this church supports Love, Inc. financially, which means that if you've given money to the offering any time, a portion of that money was used to support Love, Inc. And since my salary comes from that money, I want to personally thank you for, uh, for that. And I also want to, um, I know they don't want to be acknowledged publicly, but there are a number of folks in this church who have become individual donors to Love, Inc. And uh, uh, it's a, a behind-the-scenes type of thing, but in a very real way, we couldn't do the work that we do without uh, individual supporters like that. And there's another group of behind-the-scenes servants that I want to uh, acknowledge. I'm not going to have them stand either, but uh, they're our weekly email prayer team. Uh, one thing I've noticed uh, with Love, Inc. is that this is a ministry the enemy hates, all right? When you talk about an uh, uh, idea of bringing Christian churches from different denominations together in unity to show the love of Jesus in practical ways to people in need, the enemy doesn't want that to happen. And therefore, we need the prayers of God's people. Um, uh, if you're part of that email prayer team and you get those weekly emails from me with updates and you pray for us, I want to thank you so much. That's been a tremendous encouragement for me to know that there are people uh, all over the area that are praying weekly for uh, for me personally and for our ministry. And by the way, if you'd like to either join uh, the prayer team or donate to Love, Inc., there's a place on your talent survey you can indicate that. Uh, there's a few players here in our team that I want to acknowledge. I don't see Lavette or Maureen here. I think they're probably coming to second service, but uh, uh, Lavette is our, uh, we call her our church ministry coordinator. So she is the liaison between our church and the Love, Inc. office. So she's the one that gets requests for help from the Love, Inc. office and then uh, distributes those to you. And then Maureen is in a new position. She's our backup uh, CMC. So when Lavette can't serve, maybe from a case of poison oak or something like that. I don't know if you heard about that. Had a terrible case of poison oak. Uh, Maureen takes, takes over, kind of like tag team wrestling. Um, so uh, let me tell you, you want to be really nice to those ladies for two reasons. One, they're just nice people to begin with. So if, uh, if you're not nice, something's wrong with you. But also, uh, one of the things that Love, Inc. does is offer service opportunities to Christians which is a spiritual discipline. Serving others is one of the means that God uses to make us more like Christ. So you want to be nice to them for your own sanctification, right? So that you get those service opportunities uh, when, they, uh, when they come in. Uh, next time you see uh, uh, Lavette and Maureen, thank them for their service. Uh, a few other people that I want to acknowledge, I don't think he's here either, but uh, Philip Nimick has been a recent addition to our team as a team lead for tech-savvy volunteers. Uh, we are not exactly uh, what you'd call cutting edge in terms of tech at the Love, Inc. office. And uh, Kel is laughing. He's trying to control it here. Uh, uh, so who better than a guy that works for Google to help us in that area? And uh, while I'm on the topic, if you like our new website, loveincssj.org, uh, make sure to thank Ben Palm. He's the guy that created our new website. So thank you, Ben, for that. 
other folks, Lou Toller has a long service of history with Love, Inc. She was a former uh, CMC for our church. She's also helped with uh, the donations uh, for and getting out the receipts. And my wife, Nancy, now has taken over that uh, position of uh, donor receipt person. Also, Kat Atkinson did a great job as our CMC. And Les is here. Les, you want to stand up in the back there? Les is our uh, intake worker at our office on Fridays. And then the second service, uh, Penny Petralowicz uh, works as our receptionist. And they're both really on the front lines of our ministry. They're the ones that talk to the phone, on the phone to clients and uh, deal directly with them. Uh, I want to uh, acknowledge what a great help uh, Dave's been to me. Dave is my go-to pastor when I come up with ideas for Love, Inc. And he lets the, he encouraged me with good ideas, and he asked me questions about half-baked ideas. That's kind of when I know I'm on the wrong track, if I get a lot of questions about these, uh, these things. And he's also allowed me to use NBC as a guinea pig for testing out new innovations, to let them fail here first or succeed here first before we either pass the virus on to other churches or pass the good idea on to other churches. Uh, an example of that would be this... Uh, uh, during the Summer Theologians program a couple uh, years ago, we did a, a class on redemptive compassion that was offered here. Um, and the final person I want to acknowledge is Ken, uh, Ken, Kel Cummins. Uh, Kel, you want to raise your hand over there? Kel has uh, been a board member uh, with Love, Inc. for at least eight years, probably more than that. But uh, he's, uh, the, the role of the board is to discern God's will for the organization. And Kel has been just a uh, wonderful godly counselor uh, for that. He's also an elder at my church, so he really see, serves a very important double role in my church. Love, Inc.'s purpose is right there, to help churches help people in, a, in need in a distinctively Christian way. I want to talk about that last part of that purpose statement, in a distinctively Christian way. I've been involved in Love, Inc. the whole 29 years it's been in existence. I was 13 years as a pastor of a Love, Inc. network church, and now 16 years as the director. And one of the things that bothered me is that as I stood back and took a look, that I realized the way we were helping meet needs was pretty much like the way most Americans would help meet needs, and that we lacked a distinctively Christian uh, uh, approach to meeting needs. And uh, as a result, we weren't really seeing much life transformation in our clients. A, a key verse that God used that to help me uh, see that and turn that around uh, was Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, you probably know it as, don't be conformed to this world. I, I was hit by the, mer- uh, the uh, message paraphrase of that. It said, uh, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and I thought, you know, that's exactly what's happened with me. Uh, I, I'm an American, so I help people like Americans do, and uh, the results are not satisfying. And God used Christian books like uh, When Helping Hurts, uh, Toxic Charity, and Redemptive Compassion to help me put into words what I felt in my gut was deficient about the way we were doing ministry, and to not only accurately diagnose the problem, but uh, describe with clarity what it means to help people in a distinctly Christian way. So here are the principles that we operate by. If you've got a, uh, a uh, outline in your bulletin of those, the, uh, if you're filling the blanks type of person, the first blank to fill in is <clears throat> focus on the person, not their need. Focus on the person, not their need. And the idea behind this is that our <clears throat> American culture 
has a very need-oriented approach to poverty alleviation. So we come across a person who tells us that they need food, and instantly our focus is on what? The food, not the person, right? So we're focusing on the food, and we feel like if we can get food to this person who told us they need food, we're done. We've done what we ought to do. Um, But have we? Do you you realize that giving food to a person who asks for it may actually violate a command of Scripture? Here it is. It's uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Paul says this, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. So giving food to someone too lazy to work actually works counter to the purposes of God in that person's life. Proverbs 16.26 says, A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. So if you feed him uh, without giving him work to do, you take away his incentive to work. And you also diminish his dignity because part of being created in God's image is being a worker like our creator is. Found out uh, that things weren't always this way in our country. This uh, came from a book called The Tragedy of American Compassion by Marvin Olasky. And he explains that prior to the New Deal and the Fair Deal uh, program started by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s, the government just pretty much stayed out of benevolence work. It wasn't seen as the government's responsibility to uh, care for the poor and needy. Instead, that was done on a very local level by local civic organizations, but by mer- primarily by churches and synagogues. And... Um, the assistance that people in need received tended to be tailored specifically to what they needed as an individual or what their family needed as a family in order to be lifted out of poverty. And there were almost always self-help requirements attached. So if I was a person in need, the focus would be on getting to know me, finding out what my skills and abilities are, finding out what plunged me into poverty, uh, what can help get me out, and what part I should play in getting myself out. When the, uh, when the government got involved in, me, in a major way in meeting needs in the 1930s and 1940s, there were self-help requirements uh, to receive government aid. Namely, you had to do some kind of work. But after a while, the work requirement was changed. Uh, the focus also changed to, from the person to the need. And so the result is that in America, we now have become very efficient at meeting needs but we tend to do it without focusing on people and what would, would really be in their best interest. There's uh, three words that you might be familiar with, um, uh, relief, rehabilitation, and development as the free, three phases of uh, helping people in need. And the idea here is that different types of assistance are appropriate based on the circumstances that cause the need in the first place. So relief refers to meeting immediate needs to help people survive a crisis. We had a situation like that in our city last year, right? Anybody remember what it was? The floods, yeah. Part of our city was flooded. And so it's very appropriate to get water, shelter, clothing to those people. Uh, relief was the, was the appropriate response. And the strategy when it comes to relief is how can we get the needed supplies to those affected by the crisis as quickly and efficiently as possible. Rehabilitation refers to helping people get back to life, what life was like before the crisis. So rebuilding homes after Hurricane Harvey would be an illustration of this. And the strategy for rehabilitation is to come alongside people and partner with them as they get their lives back to normal. 
And then development refers to helping people overcome the problems that caused the poverty in the first place. And so development is the whole idea of teaching a man to fish instead of giving a man a fish. So microloans and mentoring by a business owner to help a low-income person start up their own business would be an example. And the strategy for doing development is to help the person have the skills they need to be self-sufficient. Now, here's the thing. The problem is that relief has become the go-to strategy for helping people in need in our country. Uh, We Americans are really good at getting stuff to people. And that's a fantastic uh, strategy in a relief scenario where the genuine crisis and the need is for stuff. It's a terrible strategy when it comes to situations that really need rehabilitation and development. And the results of applying the wrong strategy can be devastating. For instance, by creating a culture of dependence on the government for uh, assistance, there are families in America that have been on welfare for six generations. And so the result is that the modeling that the children need to observe in order to work and be productive members of society has been absent for generations, leaving those children crippled when it comes time to get a job and hold a job. And folks, I believe that the American church has, in a large degree, followed our culture in this, uh, in this pattern. Uh, let me give you an example. Several years ago, I met with a, uh, a pastor of a church who said, uh, uh, talked about the, the large food program that their church was running. And it was fascinating to me to listen to his uh, measure of success. He said, you know, Rich, when I came here five years ago, we were giving away $2 million worth of food a year. And this year, we're on pace to give away $12 million worth of food. And next year, we expect to give away $20 million worth of food. And as I, I stepped back and thought about the conversation later, I said, you know, that sounds exactly how the government would boast about a food stamp program, right? Where maybe a better measure of success is we have less and less and less people needing food because we've helped them get a job or helped them manage their money better. Um, so as a church, we're called to be different in the way we help people in need. Instead of focusing on the need, the biblical pattern is to focus on the person. Uh, every person that calls our love ink is precious in the sight of God, and the first gift we give them is basically unlimited time to tell their story. Hey, what's going on in your life? Let us get to know you. Let's, uh, 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 let's find out what's happening in your life. Uh, and we also investigate their need before we need it. Uh, before we meet it. We talk to other people who can give us more information. When we do get to the point of addressing their need, we seek to reflect God's love by giving them what is best for them. And folks, what people want may not be what they really need nor what is best for them. For instance, many clients call our office looking for immediate financial assistance to meet a financial need. And what we offer is to pair them with a budget mentor and teach them biblical principles of money management. The second uh, biblical principle for helping people in need is to seek to discern what God is doing in the person's life so that we join him in his work. And Jesus set the example for this uh, in this regard. In your notes, there's uh, this verse, John uh, 5, 19. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So this tells us Jesus never did anything on his own. He was always watching what the Father was doing and joining in the Father's work. 
and we're called to do the same. Since the person in need is of great value to God, we're make the, to make the assumption that he has already been at work in their life before their interaction with us. So as we hear their story and we investigate the request, we seek to prayerfully discern what he's been doing in their life so that we can cooperate with him. Uh, that was the practice of the patriarch Job. This is Job 29.16. Job says, I was a father to the needy, and get this, and I, investig- I investigated the case which I did not know. How else can you be a good steward without investigating a case that you don't know about? And folks, I'll tell you what easily derails us here. It's making hasty decisions based on what makes us feel good. And what makes us feel good may actually be harmful to the person asking for our help. Let me give you an example. Imagine that an elderly widow calls a church near her home and explains that her front yard has become overgrown with weeds and that her neighbors called the city and filed a complaint against her. And now the city is putting pressure on her to get her yard cleaned up. So the church uh, secretary passes that request to the head of the men's ministry, who rallies a group of men to descend on her yard on a Saturday morning and beat it back into submission. And the widow, the neighbors, the city, the volunteers all feel good about the situation when the job is done. So everybody feels good, but have they done good? I would submit to you, we don't know enough of the story to know if they've done good yet, right? Now, you might be thinking, well, she's a widow. The men's group tidied up her, her yard. How could that be wrong? Well, what if this was the backstory? What if due to frequent falls and hazardous condition they had found in their mother's home, the three adult children of that widow had decided it was unsafe for their mom to live alone anymore? Uh, what if the daughter had a comfortable guest cottage all set up for her on her property where her mom could maintain her independence but be close enough so the daughter could keep an eye on her? What if the widow had persistently turned down the arrangements her children had tried to set up to help her? And what if the three adult children knew that their mother was so stubborn and independent that the only way they could convince her it was time to make a change was to not help her with the upkeep of her house and her lawn? What if that was the backstory? So here we nice church people come in to save the day, when in doing so, we were working contrary to what the woman's family knew was best for her. Do you see how if your goal is to cooperate with God, you can't base your actions on what feels good to you, but on discerning through prayer and investigation what he's already doing in the person's life so you can join him. I want to show you a verse that points out that need for discernment to help people. If you've got a Bible, turn to this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. This one's not in your notes, so if you want it, you might need to write it down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And Paul says this, And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. Do you, you see how that verse demands discernment before we attempt to help? There's three kinds of people described here. There's the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And there are different kinds of actions towards each one. It would be harsh to admonish the faint-hearted, right? Why? Because their heart is faint to begin with. Uh, Isaiah 42 says of Jesus that a a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. So people who are faint-hearted need encouragement, not uh, admonition. Likewise, we wouldn't want to encourage the unruly. Why not? Because they continue to be unruly. So like a good doctor, you have to take the time to hear the person's story, 
investigate and pray for discernment to get the right diagnosis so that you can prescribe the right remedy. Our uh, third principle is to come alongside and partner with the person to meet their own need. Living in chronic need takes a toll on a person's self-worth. Most middle-class Americans tend to think of poverty in terms of stuff. A person is poor because they don't have enough fill-in-the-blank. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough education. They don't have enough food, enough health care. Do you know that is not the way people in poverty define poverty? This was a real eye-opener for me as a middle-class person. Um, In the 1990s, the World Bank interviewed 60,000 poor people from 60 low-income countries across the world to get their answer to this question. What is poverty? To their surprise, hardly any poor people describe poverty as not having enough stuff. Instead, they describe poverty as a mindset of hopelessness that things will ever get better. Think about that. That's how the poor define poverty. It's a mindset of hopelessness that things will never get better. If you've ever been laid up with a debilitating illness for a long time, or you've been unemployed for a long time, you can understand the negative effects those things can have on your self-esteem. That's why I wanted Rob to to, uh, lead into this sermon with this uh, song, I Am Who You Say I Am. Uh, You know, when you think about that, uh, that is a fantastic poverty-fighting song. Um, I assure you that people who have a mindset of hopelessness are listening to to voices that define their identity, but it's not God's voice. Those voices defining their identity are conveying negative messages like you're worthless, you're a failure, you'll never amount to anything, you're poor because you ought to be poor, and that'll never change. But if they would redefine their identity based on who God says they are, think how life-changing that would be. So what does God say? Uh, what does God say to, to people? What's the gospel? The gospel is, I love you so much I gave Jesus to redeem you. You're worth the son to me. You're forgiven. Your sin's been paid for and forgotten. I've adopted you as my adult son or daughter and entrusted you with responsibilities in my kingdom. I've prepared good works for you to walk in. If Poverty is defined as a mindset of hopelessness, a song declaring to low-income people that their identity could be based on who God says they are is really about the most effective poverty-fighting tool we can, we can offer. How we respond to people in need will either reinforce that mindset of hopelessness or it can change it by helping them see who God says they are and affirming their potential to have a better life. When we do for people what they can and should do for themselves, it reinforces the idea that they are incapable and it negatively affects their self-esteem. And that's the reason that you don't see dads around when charitable organizations give out free toys for Christmas. The dads are ashamed that they don't have the money to buy toys for their kids, so they disappear. Why would they want to show up and let everybody know, I'm a dad that can't provide for my kids? So what would change that scenario? I know a Love, Inc. that does this. They set up a toy store where parents, moms and dads, can spend Christmas toy vouchers that they've earned during the year by participating in that Love, Inc.'s budget mentoring program. And you know who comes to that event? Dads come to that event. That Love, Inc. preserved the dignity of those dads by allowing them to earn the vouchers they use to buy toys for their kids. 
It takes a tremendous amount of discernment to do benevolence work in a way that doesn't further damage the the self-worth of the person asking for help, but instead affirms their God-given potential. I want you to turn to uh, Galatians chapter 6. And there's two verses that uh, that at first blush sound contradictory, but you, when you uh, dig in a little further, they're actually very complementary, and they give us some great insight here. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, and then verse 5. So Galatians chapter 6, starting verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And then verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. So what's with that? It sounds like he's saying two different uh, contradictory things. Um, the, the difference is that uh, two different words are used to describe the burden or the load. And verse 2 refers to a burden that's too heavy to carry on your own. So if you think about extremely heavy, overstuffed backpack, you'll have the right idea. The word load in verse 5 refers to something that's not too heavy, but something a person should be able to carry on their own. Think of a knapsack, and you've got the right idea. So in effect, Paul is teaching each of you should carry your own knapsack, but help each other with the overstuffed heavy backpack. So the biblical principle here is to share one another's excessive burdens, but expect people to do what they're capable of doing. So because of that, at Love, Inc., we have a a new slogan that we've adopted, which is to require the able-bodied to lift their end of the couch. And the whole idea there is if I were to ask you, would you come over to my house and help me lift my couch, you totally understand why I'm asking you. Lifting the couch is a two-person job. I can't do it by myself, all right? But when you get to my house to help me lift my couch, if I ask you, well, where's the other volunteer? You ought to look back at me and say, well, that would be you, Rich, right? It's your couch. You're the one that needs it moved. So I'll get on this end, and you get on this end, and together we'll move it. Um, If you want a great example of this principle uh, from the Old Testament, read the Leviticus passage in your note. It talks about the practice of gleaning, where they would uh, the poor would go out in the field and work for the day as harvesters, and they would get to keep the the excess crops. So that leads into our next uh, principle, which is to allow people to learn life lessons that come from natural consequences of their choices. We live in a culture that is very resistant to this, but folks, it is very biblical. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read this, but I referenced Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 in your outline, uh, so you can look at it later. It talks about the fact that just like as earth, uh, like we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, our heavenly father disciplines us. A huge part of the way God disciplines us is by allowing us to learn life lessons from the consequences of our choices. Anybody else here experience that on a regular basis, right? You make a choice. That didn't work out well. I don't want to do that again, all right? Um, A former Love, Inc. board member once stated it this way. He said, you know, Rich, when your kids are young, you teach them. After that, life teaches them. (laughs) I thought, you are so right. And here's the thing. Life will teach them if we don't stand in the way by rescuing them from the natural consequences of their choices. So in the previous example, the natural consequence of my choice not to lift my couch is the couch stays put. And the annoyance of having an ugly, unwanted couch cluttering up my living room ought to motivate me to pick up my end of the couch. I'll feel better about myself and my living room when I do. But because we live in a rescuing culture, 
Our tendency is to recruit a second volunteer to come pick up the other side of the couch as I sit idly by and and look on. So our misguided helping people uh, actually hurts them. When we rescue people from experiencing the natural consequences of their choices, the life lessons that God intends them to learn are thwarted, and get this, they stay perpetually immature and irresponsible. And folks, this principle hits me right where I live. I am an adult child of an alcoholic father, and one of the dysfunctions that I picked up early in life was being a rescuer. Uh, If I'm truthful, I have to admit that in hindsight, my attempts to rescue people have usually resulted in making the situation worse. Uh, I went on a prayer retreat in January and uh, spent three days with the Lord. My big takeaway from that uh, prayer retreat is, Rich, you cannot rescue anybody. Uh, God can use me to help people, but I can't rescue anybody. I shared that insight at a prayer group that Dave was uh, part of, and when he prayed for me, uh, God thanked God for giving me Clarity on the Savior question. I thought, that's great. That's a great way to put it. Jesus is the Savior, not me. Next uh, principle is recognize that biblical compassion ministry is inherently expensive. Uh, Folks, we like to do things cheap and easy, uh, but you just can't do that if you're going to do biblical compassion ministry. It takes involvement. It takes somebody who cares. Um, And let me tell you, folks, we're blessed at this church to have leaders in the church that tell that to people. When people come to the church and ask for money, I know this because Dave's told me this, he'll tell them, you know what we really want? We want you to to let us walk alongside you. Let us love on you. Let us uh, be there for you as you go through this difficult time. And uh, the sad to say, a lot of the people don't want that. They just want the cash, and and they're not interested. Last thing is... uh, Remember that it's the gospel that truly changes lives. Uh, Folks, my testimony is this, that the gospel changed my life. Uh, I came to Christ about 13, uh, when I was 13 years ago. And when I heard this good news, that God loved me enough to send his son to die on the cross for my sins, and he raised him from the dead to give me assurance that I too could be resurrected and have eternal life, and that my status before God could change from that of a convicted criminal before a righteous judge to that of an adopted son before a loving father, that news, that good news, totally changed my life, and it has ever since. Uh, And folks, I know I'm preaching to folks that the same thing has happened. That news changed your life. So if the gospel changed our lives, doesn't it make sense that sharing the gospel is the very best thing we can do to people in need? Um. Those are the principles that we operate uh, by. And um, since this is a church where we uh, test out innovations, Dave wanted me to uh, share our, our newest one with you. And uh, it comes from this. Another loving director challenged me with the thought that if our goal is for clients is life transformation, is it realistic to expect that to happen by having a Christian volunteer meet a one-time request for help? In other words, uh, is it realistic to think that 84-year-old Mabel's life will be transformed because a volunteer from a church near her house fixed her leaky kitchen faucet? Uh, Life transformation requires an infusion of biblical truth over a long period of time in the context of significant relationships with caring Christians. And we want to offer 
a program to our clients that gives them the best chance at life transformation. And uh, many love inks around the country have found that the best program to offer is something like a long-term six to 12 month uh, budget mentoring program. Uh, and the reason for that is that problems uh, with, uh, uh, that money problems are really symptoms and uh, the underlying problems deal with a person's uh, self-worth or emotional health. And uh, that'll evidence itself in their handling of money. Um, so that ties right back into the idea that, the, that at its root, poverty is a mindset of hopelessness. Now, here's the deal. If you advertise, come to a class designed to help you heal from your faulty self-image and your deep emotional wounds, nobody's going to sign up to that, Right? But if you say, hey, come to a class where we'll help you manage your money, that's, that's pretty, uh, that doesn't have a stigma to it. Everybody in America kind of realizes, yeah, I'm not so good with money, I could use some help. And so they'll come to that kind of a program. Uh, we've been running a budget mentoring program for the last 12 years. Uh, currently, it's uh, seven large group classes, followed with uh, eight one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with a budget mentor. And uh, our, I've been challenged to raise that up to the next level. So our goal is in January uh, next year to start up what we're calling a comprehensive transformational ministry. And instead of eight meetings with a budget mentor, we plan to expand that between six months to a year, meeting one-on-one -on -one every week with a budget mentor. And we offer, uh, also plan to offer a slate of classes that will last three months and will repeat throughout the year. And those classes deal with this mindset of hopelessness. Who does God say you are? Uh, what skills and abilities do you have? What, what can we do to show you there actually is hope for you? Uh, and part of it's the practical nuts and bolts on managing money and, and other things like that, but to offer them those classes and to have that accountability. Um, I visited a Love Inc. affiliate that has a year-long program like I described, and I attended their graduation ceremony. And the testimonies that I heard from the graduates were, uh, were amazing. Uh, here's just one statistic. Uh, uh, it was their, they had a, uh, a video of their 15-year anniversary of this program. So in those 15 years, 338 families graduated from the program. 177 divorces were averted. In other words, 52% of the couples going through the program were on the verge of divorce before they started, but the program was so transformative that they reconciled and remained married. I want to see that happen here, don't you? Um, the plans for this comprehensive uh, transformational uh, program are so new, they're not even on the talent survey in your bulletin. Uh, there's a box for be a budget mentor. You can check that. But for uh, uh, serving a meal to the uh, classes, people going through the classes or child care, you have to write that in under uh, other services. Um, also, in your bulletin, there's this green piece of paper that says uh, important information for volunteers. What this is is... 29 years of mistakes, all right? <laughs> We've been making mistakes for 29 years. We put them on this piece of paper. If you read this, you'll avoid some of the mistakes that we made. Um, so I encourage you to follow those tips uh, when you're helping loving clients. Uh, Lavette can email that to you, uh, but I encourage you to put it somewhere. You won't, uh, you won't lose it. So Dave's going to talk about how this ministry fits into our overall ministry as a church. So about a year ago, we did a series here 
called Heading, and Heading was this idea of where, as a church, we're going. It was really good for people who are new or were kind of newish to the church. Um, it was also the culmination of a lot of prayer and a lot of conversations, a lot of seeking the Lord about God. As we approached our 10-year anniversary as a church, we just, uh, as leaders, as church members, asked God, where do you want us going, and are we still on course? And God led us in some very specific directions. One of the things about heading that um, that we pointed out during that series is, um, unlike cruise ships, cruise ships sometimes have, I've never been on a cruise, but I forget what it's called, but it's where you basically go around and do circles in the ocean. You're not really going anywhere. You're just there to hang out, kill time, party, uh, and then rest up and do some more. Um, and sometimes churches can look like cruise ships right? Um, where they're sort of killing time. No one really knows if they're going somewhere. Is there a destination? Are we, are we accomplishing something? How do we know when we get there? Um, and and uh, we're really clear here as a church that we are not just doing circles, that God has led us in some very key areas. Um, and simple family and gifts are the three words that kind of lock this in our mind. And what I want to do this morning is just briefly say what Rich just talked about ties directly into this third one of gifts. Uh, we are convinced because the Bible teaches it clearly that every single person, the, this uh, every child of God that we just sang about is gifted by the creator for the good of the body and the good of the surrounding city. And what happens sometimes in churches is what happens um, on sort of a maybe tourist thing with sailing. You have a few crew members that are rushing around doing all the work, know all the rigging things, and know what's happening. And you have other other people with life vests sitting still with Mai Tais in their hand, watching all the work go on, saying, isn't this marvelous? This is incredible. And what we say is that's not a biblical picture of church. The biblical picture of church is that we're all in the sailboat together, that we're all working as a team, that we all know our role in our gifting. And what Rich just shared is a compelling way to take what you probably already possess and begin to look outside of yourself with it. How many of you know how to do errands? Raise your hand. Okay. There are people in our city who need help doing errands. If you already know how to shop, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but you probably know how to shop. Um, if you do yard work for your own house, please keep doing yard work for your own house because that's a good thing, but extend that elsewhere. I heard of a family recently in our congregation that took part of their vacation time to go and build something for someone else. Again, that's just being a Christian. That's really all that is, is being a Christian, but it stands out as somewhat exceptional sometimes in our Christian culture. Let me just read 1 Peter uh, 4.10, which says this. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So when we did this series, we said each family member has a gift. There's no bystanders. We're to use those gifts and be good stewards, and it's for the glory of God. 
So what Rich just shared is a way for you to take a tangible first step. And as you take a first step of obedience, um, there's a there's usually other steps that follow. But you don't get to see the other following steps until you take that first step. So I would strongly encourage you, if, if you don't know, you, you just think, gosh, if there were just needs that I knew were legitimate, I knew that they were tangible and I could meet them, I would do it. Well, here's your opportunity. Rich has just laid that out. So, um, so that's what loving's about. That's how it ties in to what we're doing as a church. Um, before I turn to the band, let me, let me say a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for giving us principles, God, that as Rich taught through that, it just makes sense. And it is getting more and more countercultural. God, I thank you for the difficulty, messiness, and inefficiency of doing kingdom work. God, we don't want to be slow. We don't want to be inefficient. Um, but Father, we know that life and growing things and people is multidimensional and takes time. We need your grace. God, we need your compassion to fill our hearts, to get outside of ourselves, get outside of our family, and reject the notion that we're building a little kingdom here on earth. God, we receive the promise that all the goodness of life here is nothing compared to the reward that you've promised us. We believe that. We trust that, God. And so we use our short time here on earth to be about your business, to live as you did, to live simply and with the spotlight on others. God, teach us that. Grow that in us. In Jesus' name, amen.